Welcome to Founders of Friends podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is Mike Frankel of Deloitte. But first, before we get to Mike, I'm going to do a quick shout out to our sponsor, Rippling. Rippling is payroll for startups. Rippling is benefits for startups. Rippling integrates all your new employees into your IT stack, making it super easy to enable their cloud services. That's a really big deal. We did a study at Cruise. It takes us three hours to do that for each new employee. So Rippling is saving you three hours every time you hire someone. Pretty awesome service. So check out Rippling for your payroll benefits, and it's really nice for your IT systems too. All right, Mike from Deloitte. Mike, you are a longtime friend. I'm so fired up to do this podcast. You're going to tell us how to do M&A from the buyer side, or you're going to give us advice on what, how startups should handle themselves when they're talking to a buyer. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, th- I think there's a, there's a lot that can be done to make the selling experience easier and and more effective. I've I've bought a few dozen companies over the course of my career and I can't tell you how many times I thought to myself if only they had done these three things, I could have done the deal, I could have paid more, it could have been easier. That's amazing. Well, maybe you you said you have all this experience and I've worked with you in the past. Can you retrace your career a little bit here? Sure. Um, so I've had a varied career is probably a nice, friendly way of saying it. I was a, a M&A lawyer. I was an investment banker. And then I ran M&A at uh, several large uh, uh, either divisions of or, or full tech and information services companies. Uh, I was at VeriSign. I was at GE. I was at IRI. I was at LexisNexis. Um, I was at a couple of smaller tech companies on the selling side, um, including one that we sold to Amazon. And then I ended up at Deloitte, uh, where I run a internal strategy and ops team um, to help us build new technology businesses for ourselves. It's an incredible resume. I had the fortune of working with you on the VeriSign deal when they bought Network Solutions or merged. Um, and we're going to get into a bunch of different stuff. Before we get into it too much, you have a really awesome book on Amazon called M&A for the Non-Practitioner. And maybe just give a quick blurb on that, but I highly recommend people read it, especially founders I actually recommend it to founders that we talk to who are going to go through an M&A process. It's a great book. Uh, maybe give a couple words on that, too. Sure, yeah. So I wrote M&A Basics a while ago, and the goal was, you know, I did a lot of M&A, but there were lots of people around me, whether they were the sellers, whether they were business people in my business, who didn't understand how the process worked. And so I tried to lay out in fairly easy to understand terms, here are all the parts of the process, here are all the players and what they do, so that you go in with an understanding of how this is all going to work. Because my experience is um, M&A is like a water slide. You know, once you start down the process, you throw up your arms in the air and go, we, because there's no stopping it. So you want to be as prepared as you can before you take that first step. I'm trying not to laugh uncontrollably because I agree 100% and I have a cough, as you can hear but I'm nodding vigorously. Like that is actually maybe the best analogy because it really does feel like things are out of, out of control sometimes. And you know what the funny thing about, I think why the book is so cool is because most of the founders we work with, they're either first time or maybe second time, a few a few serials, but you you kind of have to live it. There's there's And there's no way to live it before you go through it. So the book is actually really helpful to prepare you to actually, when you hit those moments of like you're starting to go out of control and go we 
you can actually get back into control. Yeah, absolutely. It, it gives you some keys to, you know, what questions you should be asking, what, what things you can do to prepare, um, you know, who's, who's doing what and who's not doing what, because it's a fairly complex process. It's definitely complex. Well, so we, you, we were kind of talking a couple of days ago, and you, you had a great slogan that I thought would be a good thing to start off with, where you said that it pays to be pre-prepared for M&A. Can you tell, tell, tell the audience what you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about it for a second, when you sell your business, this is a magical moment in time where all the work you've, you've put in, all the money you've invested, all the blood, sweat, and tears over a long period of time all turns on this one event over a very short period of time. And so preparing to make it go well, optimizing your business to sell is is critically important, right? You can you can take 10 years worth of work and either increase the value or decrease the value by 10, 20, 30, 40% based on fairly lightweight things that you're doing in the couple of years before you sell. So in my mind, it's penny-wise and pound-foolish not to do this stuff, not to get the best value. It's like shining your car, waxing your car before you sell it. And so I think that there are a bunch of different, fairly straightforward, some a little bit of work, some not that much work, things that you can do to make sure that you get the most out of this you know, precious asset, the most important thing you've ever built unless you have kids. Yeah, and, you, and you're right. Like everyone puts like so much of their life into these companies. And I think we're going to get in a bunch of this stuff. But, but a lot of them think that they can – the founders think they can like redo their financials after the buyer calls for the first time or get their compliance in order or there's a bunch of tactical things that you really nail and I think you're going to nail in this conversation. But like it actually moves way too fast. You have to do it before. You'll never catch up. And Mm -hmm. also like I always tell founders, they're kind of on the clock the moment that that conversation starts and they're being judged the moment that conversation starts. And so there's a lot of positive and negative signaling that can happen as well if you're not prepared or if you are prepared. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly important point and one that founders are often not thinking about. As a buyer, I don't have perfect visibility, right? You're, you're a little bit of a black box. You're not a public company. You don't have research analysts covering you. So I'm guessing at what's inside the box, right? I, I, it's, like, it's, like, it's like a Christmas morning, right? I can shake it. <laughs> I can shake it is, um, but I'm guessing, and so I look for signals. And those signals can either excite me or they can worry me. And they're going to feed into whether I want to do the deal and how much I'm willing to pay. If, if I see things that make me think maybe there's something there below the surface, maybe they haven't done something properly, maybe they don't have a good handle on their business, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm risk averse. I'm going to discount my price, even if it's not true, right? Even if it's a, an amazing gift wrapped in newspaper – I see the newspaper, maybe I, I decide not to open the gift. Yeah, no one can blame you for that because you just don't know what you don't know. Well, there, So there's, there's a couple buckets. I, one of the things that you said to me a couple days ago was it's actually cheaper for the startup to be in compliance and be settled and just put together than it is for your team. And that actually blew my mind. Maybe you can explain that to folks. Sure. I mean, it's, when you think about it for a second, it's fairly common sense, right? Startups are lean. You um, manage your costs. You manage your infrastructure, right? You manage all your luxuries because it's your money or it's your venture investor's money. Um, large corporates have a much bigger cost structure, right? Our people are more expensive and we're more risk averse. So we do things in a really rigorous and thorough way. So 
anything that you can do that I then don't have to do after I buy your company probably costs you 10%, 20% as much as it would me. And I'm going to factor that into the price. When I look at your company, if I think I have to fix something, I'm going to do my math and go, okay, how much would it cost me to fix it? I'm going to take that out of your purchase price, right? So there's just a pure value creation exercise in you prepping your company for sale and limiting the number of things I have to do that I have to fix, right? I have a, you know, you are really good at fixing your own house and you have a hammer and nails. I'm going to have to hire a contractor to do the same work. And it's that 10x number blew my mind, but I actually think it's totally true because if you think about the kind of like financial consultants that Deloitte has to bring in or some of your like Verisign or some of the other companies you've worked at, they're so expensive by the hour. And the lawyers that you guys pay are so expensive by the hour. And like so many of these kind of things, taking away your personnel's attention from their normal job to come diligence something or how are we going to fix this or fix that? Yeah. That's incredibly exp- expensive time. So that was a that was a real eye opener for me. Yeah, I, I think that's right. There's also an opportunity cost, right? If we want to buy your company, it's because we want to get going on whatever mm. it is you have. If we look at your company and say, wow, we're going to have to spend six months fixing it, that's six months of opportunity cost that's lost on us. Um, and, and then the, the last thing is this. It's also cheaper and easier for you to fix your company because going back to the point about the, the Christmas box, you understand your company. Yeah, yeah. We don't. Yeah. So the example I often give people is it is dramatically cheaper for you to do a really thorough job of documenting your technology than it would be for us to take a team, dissect your technology, and create documentation. I, I totally get that. Like another one in the accounting world is like Reverac. Like you're you're gonna have to hire an accountant who doesn't know any of the deals, has to read through every invoice, every master contract, and try to figure out how RevRec should be instead of the founder, who probably closed half those deals themselves, and the VP of sales who closed the rest of them, knowing exactly how things should have been done. So if you just do it ahead of time, everyone wins. It's so much better for everybody. Exactly, exactly. And it, this gets to the sort of the the adjunct point, which is, and RevRec is a great example. I get nervous. When I see numbers that I know aren't good gap accounting, I worry about, is that just because you did it a different way or is that because you're hiding something? Now I've got to think about, do I want to build into my price the risk that I discover that you did some bad accounting, that you're, uh, you, you, know, you front-loaded revenue that you shouldn't have front-loaded, things like that. So anytime I encounter something that I don't understand, doesn't seem to be standard, is, is not transparent to me, I just, it, it's literally checking off, that's a risk, that's a risk, that's a risk. And honestly, in a not too unlinear way, that's a price reduction, that's a price yeah, reduction, that's yeah. a price reduction. You had a couple other really insightful ones on the phone the other day around like software code, which yeah. again, and I'm not an engineer, so this may be common, you know, maybe more founders that we work with who tend to be engineers understand this more, but could you get into that just a little bit? Sure. I mean, the the sort of most powerful one is open source code, right? Using open source code in the wrong way, in the wrong place, in a way that doesn't comply with the the rights that you have is a huge danger. It's a huge no-no because while a startup may think nobody's going to sue us over this, a large buyer will immediately get sued, or at least that's going to be our assumption. So 
don't build don't build in a way that a large corporate wouldn't want to run the technology. And that applies to everything. That applies to the level of rigor, the level of QA you apply. Um, don't take shortcuts because we're going to have to fix all of that in post, and it's going to be much more expensive for us to fix and much more risky. We start to worry about whether we're going to how much code we're going to have to rebuild. If we see, you know, if you if you peel back the corner and you see, you know, a mess. Um, like a, you're buying a house and it's got carpet. You peel back a corner of the carpet and you see rotted wood. You're going to assume the rest of the yep. wood under that carpet yep. is rotted too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, think as you're building out. And obviously, there's a there's a balance here because you're a startup. You want to be cost effective. You're not building every bell and whistle, but make sure that what you build is enterprise grade. And, and imagine yourself as a large corporate buyer, the the dev team on a large corporate buyer. What's the standard? that you would hold that code to before you'd release it to your large clients. Totally. And like you guys are a target for lawsuits. Like you're just a walking piggy bank and in some in the IP litigation people's eyes, right? So like you really that's that's a big part of your job probably is like buttoning that stuff up and making those reps and warranties internally so that everyone knows Mike Frankel's name is on the line. If Absolutely. there's an acquisition, you know, so that's, that's got to right. be pretty that's, scary. That's right. That's what diligence is. Yeah. And frankly, there's a, there's another probably even bigger risk, which is, sure, if we buy something that, that violates somebody else's rights, we could get sued. Perhaps more importantly, if we buy something and the code is not built right and we use it with one of our large clients, we risk our client relationship. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, for any buyer. So, you know, your buyer is going to have large client relationships that are much bigger than this particular offering, right? They're putting this into a suite and they're not going to risk damaging that relationship with one bad egg. So they'll try their best to diligence your technology, but they know that once they get it inside, before they're going to sell it, they're going to make sure it works. So the less comfort they have that it's ready for prime time, the more they're going to reduce the purchase price under the assumption they're going to have to spend a bunch of money doing development work. This is another example. Large corporate developers teams, much more expensive than startup yeah, developers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought your, uh, your point about the opportunity cost of missing out on five or six months of just post-acquisition momentum was a really good one too because like, like you and I know this, and I, I think most people know this, but a lot of what goes into the deciding how much to pay for a company is the projected model, how fast you can get the revenue, how fast you can get the synergies. And delaying that by six months has a real kind of time value of money effect on the on the purchase price. Time value of money being you'd rather have a dollar now than mm-hmm. a dollar a year from now, right? Because it's worth less a year from now. So like those projections are actually not going to come true as fast as you like. You're leaving money on the table. Mm-hmm. And, and I, hadn't, I hadn't actually thought of that too. That was just a really good insight there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way the way a buyer is going to look at your business is they're going to go, all right, when we get the business in-house, what does the P&L look like for us for the next five, seven years? And if there's a delay in being able to sell or there are extra costs built in, that's all going to go into the P&L. We're going to look at all the cash flow that we get from that P&L, discount it back, and we're going to go, that's what it's worth to us. And we're going to pay you some amount less than that number by definition. So the higher you can get that number, the better. And it's also like, I mean, you, you are like the expert acquirer at, at your company, that whoever you're representing, but you probably have like a business line partner or a group manager. I don't know what the exact title would be, but whoever kind of owns that business that this acquisition is going into, 
and that's their PNL on the line too, right? Like they they're they're actually they're the ones kind of paying for this acquisition. That's exactly right, and they're and they're held to those numbers, right? That that business case that we put together, the the general manager of that business and myself, that business case hangs around their neck for years, right? Four or five years. Yeah. Um, every year, somebody will pull out that, <laughs> that PNL and go, "Remember this? Remember that money we gave you?" So. They want to be sure that they can deliver on those numbers. They want to. They they, they want to over deliver on those. Yeah, you and you. We were kind of throwing around like, how much do you think it costs companies? Just like in general, like an average. Because because you said something interesting at the beginning of the podcast where you said like, I'd actually like to pay more for a company that was well put together and well managed. Like, how much do you think companies leave on the table? Like ballpark. I think it varies a lot, but I have seen lots of companies that, in my view, left. 10 to 40% of purchase price on the table. Now, I'm, I'm not including they fail to build the right product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To, I, I'm not talking about that stuff. That stuff is the difference between a, a home run and a, and a strikeout. Yeah. I'm talking about the basic blocking and tackling of building your tech right, building your team right, having the right policies, having the right HR policies, you know, having a, re- a retainable uh, team, having a layer of management underneath you that's retainable. Uh, all that kind of blocking and tackling can radically affect the price. And it's a thousand uh, little you know, pinpricks, right? It, it, some things affect the price in a big way, some in a small way, but there's probably a set of 10, 15 best practices that if you do these things, you'll bump your price by, you know, 15, 20, 30%. And if you think about how much work you put in to building this thing, I go back to the waxing the car analogy, right? Why would you spend all this time building up a beautiful 69 Mustang and not wax it before the buyer comes over? It's it's mind-boggling. And sometimes people get so bogged down in their day-to-day or the stress is so much. But like, I keep going back to that, your comment about being pre-prepared. It just, it makes so much sense. Like if someone came to you and said, you could increase the value of your company by 25%, by doing X, Y, and Z, you would do it like in a, in a vacuum. So, and you know, there's something we, we probably should have covered at the beginning, but the reality for most startups, especially in my career, and I've been doing this for, you know, either investment banking or venture capital or, or finance accounting tax for 20 years now is almost every company actually gets acquired. Like you, you probably have some great stats on this, but like that's, that's how most companies are going to get liquid, right? Exactly. That's that. There, there are sort of three, well, four natural outcomes. A very, very, very small amount will go public. A bigger amount will go under. A relatively small amount will just stay private forever and become a founder-owned business. More so in some industries, less so. But the vast majority of liquidity events where the business doesn't go under are going to be a sale to a larger business. That is the most common exit. So if you're a founder and you're building your business, I know it's exciting to think about an IPO. I know everybody hopes to be the next massive success. But if you want to maximize your personal wealth, if you want to maximize your shareholder return, you, you should plan for the most likely outcome, and the most likely outcome is M&A. Yeah, it's, it just makes sense. And all the stuff you're going to do to make sure you're in good shape for M&A is going to be applicable 
if you're one of those companies that does do an IPO. Like you're not repeating work, right? No, 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 no. You're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, Almost everything that you do uh, for for an M&A transaction is going to be relevant if for some reason you're the company that goes that that goes public. Um, the, the the key difference is an IPO is a little bit more timing is a little bit more in your control. Well, to the extent that you you sort of choose the flight path, um, M and A can come at any time, and that's why I I argue that companies should well in advance of even an inkling that there might be an M&A transaction, should do this kind of stuff, because a lot of it you can't do overnight. You can't do it. This is the point you made at the yeah. beginning. It's too late. Once, once, somebody, once you're on the edge of the water slide, once somebody calls you and goes, I'm interested in buying your company, it's going to be too late to make a lot of these changes. And ironically, it's more expensive to try to make them in a fire drill at the end. Documenting code as you build it is dramatically easier than going back and going, wow, we have three years of development behind us. Let's go and try to document that in the next three weeks. Same thing with financials. Like it's so much easier exactly. to build it the right way. Trying to cram, we've done it by the way, and it's miserable for everybody, including the CEOs. Like in a one week or two week rebuild, you just are more likely to make errors, which make you look right. bad. You know, it's just, there's, there's also something around, um, some founders, especially some of the ones we work with, the super early stage, they'll, they'll say like, well, we're either going to be huge or we're going to do an aqua hire. But actually having your ducks in a row helps, helps – aqua hire is like better than just kind of not making it. Mm-hmm. And actually a lot of companies are able to do that these days because the team they've assembled is really Absolutely. awesome. And they built something that fits – some piece of IP that fits really nicely into an acquirer. Not a huge exit, but usually like everyone gets a job. Some of the investor mm-hmm. money get, gets paid back. That, too, is a good situation. It's actually easier if you're ducks in a row because Absolutely. the acquirer can move a lot faster. And acquire is, in a, in a way, um, at some level, the acquirer is doing you a little bit of a favor. They're obviously getting something out of it. They're getting a team and they're, you know, no one's going to do this for charity. But if you make them jump through too many hoops in an acquire, it's just not worth their time. It's not worth, you know, the opportunity cost for them. Absolutely. I would say almost all the things that you want to do to prep for M&A, you want to prep for an acquire. And even I'll give you an example of one that you might that might not resonate. Right. You might say, well, if if, if my company is going to be acquired for the team, then the code doesn't matter. Ah, but here's a question. If I'm buying a technical team. I'm going to take a look at their code. If their code is well-built, if it's well-documented, if their QA processes are good, that's going to enhance the value of the team to me, right? Your code is what shows me how good your team is. So even if it's an acquire and even if the code's getting thrown away, it's, it's a demonstration of the value of the people. And all the other things, all the things around culture, all the things around your internal processes and HR and benefits are are equally applicable to an acquire. So, you know, there's just a lot of this locking and tackling that you tend to set aside when you're in the throes of trying to grow an early stage company. And and I think I totally understand why people aren't doing this. It's hard. You're working really hard. You're trying to build something. You're trying to get your first sale. The last thing you want to think about is an employee handbook, right? But it's really important to take the time to do these things along the journey because otherwise all that work you put in, you don't get the maximum value for it. I totally agree. And there's something tucked into one of your previous comments, which I just want to kind of pull out a little bit, which is the importance of developing the future leaders of the company. Yeah. Because we were laughing because you have a good saying for this. I don't want to steal your thunder. But like there needs to be a bench at the company you're acquiring because, you know, maybe you can you can explain kind of your perspective on it. Yeah, so, so here's the thing to keep in mind, um, and this is, 
you know, especially true if you think you're going to be, the, the more successful you think you're going to be, the more true this is. Remember that the buyer is buying a whole team. It's relatively rare. Sometimes maybe the buyer has a natural management team that is going to drop on top of your business, but that's relatively rare. The much more common scenario is they want your whole business. They want your whole team. Now think for a moment about the economic reality of a successful deal. Some number of people in your business, the founders, are going to become boat rich or even plane rich. Um, and then a layer below them will become sort of house rich or nice car rich. Um, no matter how much you tell the large corporation, I'm super excited about working for you, if, you're, if we're about to make you boat rich um, or plane rich, <laughs> we are very worried that six months in, you're going to decide you don't want to fill out those TPS cover sheets, and you're going to walk away. So we're going to look at your team and go, if that happens, in how much trouble am I? So if the layer below you that are just going to be sort of house rich and car rich are top-notch and natural successors to, to your leadership team, I'm not that worried. And, you know, good for you. I'm glad that you did well as a founder. If I look at the layer below you and I go, they can't do it. I'm going to have to scramble to find someone new. They're not going to understand the business. I go back to the comments we made at the beginning. I'm going to discount the value because there's going to be disruption, right? There's going to be an opportunity cost. Um, there could even be real fundamental damage if you as a founder have a whole bunch of proprietary information locked in your brain. And if that brain takes off for Tahiti on your new boat, I'm in trouble. So layering in Spreading out your skills, layering in management that can do your job is the best way to, number one, assure that you'll get the most value for your company and that the buyer will let you go, right? The, the, more, the, the more dependent on the business you are, trust me, the more I'm going to tie your big earnout to you personally staying at the company. I hadn't thought of that's such a great point. And maybe you can, can you explain like how an earnout works for folks just so the audience can visualize it? Sure. There are a million variations yeah. on this, but the basic notion of an earnout is I'm not going to give you all your money for the company now. I'm going to give you some now, and I'm going to give you some later based on some milestones. And the milestones can be anything. The milestones can be hitting a certain amount of revenue, um, getting uh, uh, getting some development cycles out, uh, you know, achieving certain product feature functionality, or just literally you staying for a period of time. You have to, if you're not on our payroll working. Um, at year two, you don't get a certain chunk of the money. So the, the milestones will vary based on what the buyer is worried about and what the buyer wants. But with most early stage companies, there's going to be a temptation to put in an earnout. Again, it goes back to the uncertainty factor. You're much more confident of your team's ability to deliver whatever it is than I am. So I'm going to go, fine, put your money where your mouth is. I'll take part of the purchase price, I'll put it in a bank account, and you know we'll have a lot of lawyers in between. And when you do the thing you said you were going to do, whether it's get the code out or sell uh, offerings or get, get good client feedback or just show up to work, then you'll get the money. I love it. And your point, it, it's, it's a self-serving thing in that you're, you made an awesome point. The more you've kind of built the, built the fabric of the company and the infrastructure, the easier it is for the founder to leave later because they're, they're not as needed. It's, it's, yeah. It actually makes so much sense. There's also one other, I think, incentive for founders maybe that folks don't think about or it's not obvious, but almost every successful founder I know doesn't do it for the money. They do it for this burning desire to solve a problem. And they're, yeah. they just want to fix something. And the money is great. And that's part of it. And that's some, sometimes that's what keeps you up 
working at midnight when you're tired and you want to go home. But they oftentimes their legacy and their and kind of who they are as a person is tied up in the company. And post-acquisition, by having a deeper bench, it's more likely that company is going to be successful and actually add to that legacy and really do kind of world-changing stuff. And I'm sure you have some examples of acquisitions you've done, but like when you look at YouTube and Google, you know, mm-hmm. or some of the other just Facebook and Instagram, like those those were world-changing acquisitions. And the founders got so much benefit out of just seeing their company grow and fly and become a worldwide institution. So I think there's also some non-monetary reasons why founders should eventually invest in their bench and develop that next layer of, of management. Oh, yeah. And I think it's actually true for almost all of these items that we've talked about, right? If you think about it, there's a correlation between me being willing to pay more for your business and me believing that I can do something amazing with your business. Mm -hmm. So the more you make sure that your code is industrial grade, that your features and functionality are, are, are market leading, that your team is really up to snuff, that your culture will survive a merger into a larger organization. The more you do all those things, the more likely, the reason I'm willing to pay more is the more likely I think this is going to be a highly successful part of my business. And, and frankly, if you are world-class in all those things, I may even try to drive my culture with your business. I may even take your business as role models, your team as role models for the rest of my organization. Some of the best M&A I've ever seen are deals that not just bring something in, but actually change the mothership, right, are used as a change agent for the mothership in terms of innovation, in terms of culture, in terms of, you know, approach to to technology or product. Um, So... It's a little bit of a virtuous cycle, right? Because at the end of the day, we want the same thing, yeah, right? Yeah. We'll haggle over the exact dollar amount, but we want the same thing. We want a massively successful part of my, of my business, right? That's, that's what we both want. Getting a lot, doing everything to convince me that that's actually going to happen and that it actually will happen is the best way to serve my interest and the, the seller's interest. Uh, you said it perfectly. There's another item that we've talked about a couple of times, but I really want to hit it head on, which is the value of a healthy corporate culture. And, you know, this is something that, frankly, we've become big proponents of at Cruise Consulting. And because through like hyper growth and growing too fast and, and we've ha- we had an HR bump and it was, you know, we had to like really kind of get religion around this. And now it's like so clear to us how important a, a healthy corporate culture is because it kind of helps police the organization and allows the company to the, – the members of the team to police, them, police each other. But yeah. in, the, in an M&A context, it's actually super important. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll give it two layers. The first layer is having a corporate culture and corporate policies and, and, and an HR environment that aligns with a large organization. And that may not be a matter of right and wrong. It just may be a matter of what's appropriate, right? So if you create a culture where, you know, everybody takes off from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., even if they work until midnight, that's not going to work when you join a large organization. So you need to think about those kinds of things. That's category one. Category two, in my mind, I just characterize as right and wrong. There are issues around how people are treated, around different kinds of bias and harassment that are just unacceptable. And I would hope that everyone views them as unacceptable, but I can tell you that a large organization not only has a moral, but has a legal and financial force behind them saying, we won't accept that kind of, that kind of culture. We can't into our organization. So... 
it's both the right thing to do, but it's also, frankly, the right thing to do from, a, from an optimizing your ability to sell perspective, because I can tell you that we diligence culture and if we find an environment, if we find an environment that's five degrees off of center from ours, then we think we can evolve it. If we find an environment that's 30 degrees off from center, we probably won't do the deal, uh, especially if it's a people-intensive business. If we're buying the people, if we're buying the team um, and those capabilities, and we don't think that they are retainable because they won't work in our environment, because they won't be able to comply with our culture of uh, being respectful and, uh, you know, a lack of bias and, and, and uh, you know, a lack of harassment, things like that, uh, then, then the deal's not worth doing. So I would hope that everyone does it from a purely moral yeah. perspective. It's just the right thing to do, but it's also the right thing to do economically. You talked about diligencing the culture, but that does happen. Like, there are going to be a ton of background reference checks that you're never even going to know about. Like, yeah. you know, Mike, someone like Mike's Rolodex is pretty amazing. And the people that Mike knows, knows people. There's also going to be a lot of in-person meetings. There's going to be people hang, you know, your Mike's team is going to come to the office and check out the vibe and interview the employees and see how they talk about people and see if there's any. So, like, it just pays to pre-invest in this stuff, make it important. It'll help you run the business. It'll make your life easier and less stressful anyways. Absolutely. But it really does make dollars and cents differences in an acquisition situation. It, it does. And I'll make a couple of other points. One is it's not just my, you know, I, I happen to have a strong network and I can use it, but I don't need to use it. There's a lot of stuff on the web. There's a lot of public information about, about companies. It's hard to hide these days if you have a toxic culture. And the other thing I'll say is, at least this is my point of view, um, again, you shouldn't need this because you should just do it from a morally right thing to do. It is really hard to scale, in my view, a toxic culture. Um, so, you know, what you can get away with when you have 20 or 30 people, it's going to be awfully hard to get away with at scale. And it can damage or even crush your business. So setting aside M&A, although that's the most likely path, it's just, it's just a bad idea from a variety of perspectives. But buyers are becoming increasingly focused on it. Now, I will say there's one, to put a slightly more positive tone on the culture issue, there is a flip side, which I talked about earlier, which is um, we will pay more and we will buy positive culture. So if you have a culture that is particularly innovative, if you found a way to really unleash the, the, the thinking of your team um, and, and have a new approach to development or have really deeply integrated customer insights with your technology team, um, that's stuff that we want. We want to buy that, and we want to try to sort of ingest it into the rest of our organization. So there's a positive side to culture. You will get rewarded. Um, both in terms of the fact that you'll be more innovative, right, so your stuff will be more cool, but also because we'll spot that, and in a lot of times we'll try to, we try to get those kinds of cultures into our organization. Yeah, and it makes, going back to that, like, DCF calculation, the financial calculation, it makes you so much more likely to be successful, and the success is going to come faster. You're not going to be weeding through a bunch of stuff for six months, you know, handling HR issues. You're going to just be able to get right. Everyone's going to sit in the same room and be able to work together. It's going to be really yeah. nice. So that makes so much sense. And by the way, this is a particularly critical point when you do an acquisition because an acquisition is a cultural stressor. And so if there are underlying problems, if there are underlying issues, the acquisition point just uh, accelerates them. And I'll give you one wacky story. I won't 
say the name of the buyer, but um, at, at one point in my career, I acquired a company. And um, this was a mistake that I made. Um, and we acquired this company, and we didn't immediately go out to visit it. because. And, and by the way, this is a great example. The leaders made a lot of money and basically checked out. And nobody went out to visit the company. And then and it was a, it was a hot market, lots of job opportunities. And after about a month, I checked in with the GM, and I said, so how's it going? He goes, oh, I don't know. I should probably go out and look. So he flew out. Oh, gosh. And discovered that about a third of the employees had just left. Oh, my God. No one had told them what was going on. Yeah. And so they just took the calls and got job offers. And about, like, I think about a third of the clients had also left because it was the perfect storm where the clients heard that the company had been acquired. And they started calling. No one called the clients. Yeah. Their account managers weren't at their desk. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. the, The joke I tell is, but for... 50 polo shirts and one airline ticket, you could have prevented this. If somebody had come out and said, yeah. there's a lot of change going on, but here, welcome to the team. We're excited to have you on board. Give us a few weeks. We're going to be back with more information, but it's going to be super fun. Here's pizza. You could have prevented that kind of damage. I, You know, the, you make such a great point. And I remember at Hamburg & Quist, where we met, where I was working, was Investment Bank acquired by Chase J.P. Morgan. And to Chase's credit, they actually did fly out all their senior executives. And I remember having that meeting with the entire M&A team. People kind of a little nervous and scared because you either chose to work at somewhere like H&Q, which is like a very entrepreneurial, you know, not super stuffy place to do investment banking, or you went to work at Goldman, Chase, J.P. Morgan, whatever, which was all suits all day long, you know. And so it was a totally different culture. And I remember sitting in that meeting and the tension was palpable, Mm -hmm. but the Chase executives did a really good job and actually got people on board. And so that is an amazing example of like just the power of showing up, being a person, relating to people and just answering questions like that. That's all it was for us. Like people just didn't know what was going to happen. And so I, I think that's. That's an amazing story. It's also, I, I have to get you out of here. That was a great way to end. Can can you just tell us a little about where people can find you? And before you do, again, you have a great book on Amazon called M&A Basics for Non-Practitioners. And I highly recommend people read it. It's Mike, I've had many non-podcast conversations with Mike over the years, and he just knows this stuff so cold. So please check out the book. But Mike, maybe you can tell everyone where they can find you and how to get in touch. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me at michaelfrankel.net. And then on Amazon, I actually have three three books, but, but M&A Basics is probably the most relevant one for this group. So hopefully it's helpful. Mike, awesome job. I think we're going to probably have to have you on again. This was amazing. Cool. Thank you so much for making time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Right. Good to talk to you. Yeah, take care. Take care. Bye. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Olm. Thanks to Mike Frankel for an awesome podcast on M&A from the buyer's perspective. I love it. That's going to be super popular with our founders. And before we go here, I just want to give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the best payroll benefits and integrated IT system solution for your startup. Check out Rippling at rippling.com. And thanks for listening to the podcast. Appreciate it.